Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Thrawn here. Glad you could join us today. So, I remind you, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read in Ayers LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No one to authorize use or duplication is permitted. No siree. Okay, so let's start off with uh, an obituary. This is actually from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, January 3rd, 2024. Shecky Green, 1926 to 2013, comedian, was a brash orator. Free form performer was known for Las Vegas shows and spots on late night TV by Carlos De Lera. Legendary stand-up comedian Shecky Green, known for his rambling routines, several headlining runs in Las Vegas, and constant presence on the late night talk show scene, died at his home in Las Vegas on Sunday, his widow Marie Musso Green confirmed to the Times. He was 97. According to Musso Green, the Vegas headliner died of natural causes. It was fun, Green's wife of 41 years told the Las Vegas Review Journal of what it was like being married to the comedian for all those years. He always made humor out of whatever he could. He could he made you laugh and feel good. It was a happy time. Green's fast-talking narrative style of comedy was often featured on The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson and The Ed Sullivan Show during their TV heyday in the 60s and 70s. Although he enjoyed mainstream success and was very well compensated for it, Green was also known as a comedian's comedian in certain sectors of the comedy world. The free foreign performer, some of whose routines have aged better than others, rose to fame as a comedian in the 1950s. Born Fred Sheldon Greenfield in Chicago in 1926, he served in the Navy during World War II and enrolled in junior college, but left when he was offered a two-week gig at the Preview Lounge in New Orleans. He stayed for six years until it burned down. After showcasing his stand-up across the Midwest, New Orleans, and Miami, Green landed his first Las Vegas show in 1954, opening for comedic singer and actor Dorothy Shea at the now-closed Last Frontier Hotel and Casino on the Las Vegas Strip. Green was known as an all-purpose entertainer of old, the old school who told jokes and stories, sang and seemed to have an endless story of the kinds of observations that made the dreariness and confusion of life not only bearable, but also funny. He would also do most anything for their delectation. Once during a Florida gig early in his career, he did a body flip that landed him flush on his knee, which blew up to the size of a cantaloupe. He parlayed that early success in Sin City into a five-year headlining act at Vegas' famous Tropicana, Hotel, Tropicana uh, Hotel starting in 1957. Green would go on to co-headline a show at the MGM Grand Hotel alongside Dean Martin in 1975. While he thrived on stage, Green privately struggled with drug, drinking, and gambling addictions. Green was a compulsive gambler who shrugged off the loss of potloads of money. He could afford it, he reasoned, given his stratospheric weekly earnings of $100,000 in the 70s. The only other stand-up comics pulling down six figures at the time were Don Rickles, Buddy Hackett, Bill Cosby, and Johnny Carson. Before long, his escapades became as legendary as his shows. There was the time Green plowed his car into the fountain in front of Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas, 
and while security guards surrounded him under towering plums of water, he rolled down his window and said, Hold the spray wax, please. Or that's how he told it on stage, as Green told the Times for a profile in 2005. The cops came, and I went. I told Buddy Hackett about it. He gave me the line about the spray wax, and I put it in my act. There was also the night when Carson, in his drinking days, chased Green out of Hackett's house during a party. Green eventually plunged into Hackett's swimming pool, fully clothed, clambered out, and squished his way home. The next day, he remembered nothing but felt remorseful. He knew from experience that he was a mean, obstreperous drunk. Later in his life, the brash orator found himself too anxious and depressed to return to the stage. He later shared publicly a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. You feel you're in a pit, a hellhole, Green told the Times in 1994. There's nowhere to go. You can't get out. You feel alone. It was a big effort just to get him to walk, Musso Green told the Times for the same piece. Socially, we couldn't go out. You couldn't drive. If a restaurant was too dark, he'd leave. If a restaurant was too light, he'd leave too. I'd, I had to warn our friends to expect anything. Green returned to the stage in Las Vegas in 2009 after an extended time away from, from performing. Aside from his stand-up career, Green also found success on television and in film. In 1981, he played the role of Marcus Vindictus in Mel Brooks's comedy classic History of the World Part One. He was also featured on Ron Howard's 1984 Tom Hanks-led film, Splash. Showing his performing range, Green appeared in the World War II drama series Combat in the 1960s. He also had guest appearances in a range of comedy series through the years, including The Love Boat, Laverne and Shirley, The Fall Guy, Roseanne, and Mad About You. Green is survived by Musso Green, his third wife, as well as his daughters, Dorian and Allison. That was Shecky Green, 1926-2023, Comedian Was a Brash Orator, by Carlos De Lora from the Calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, January 3rd, 2024. Former uh, Times staff writer Lawrence Criston contributed to this report. And now, on to Israel stories. From the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, December 31st, 2023, War to Last Many More Months, Netanyahu Says. The Israeli leader thanks the U.S. for its support, including more weapons. By Wafa, Sharafa, Sami Magdi, and Abby Sewell. Dear Al-Bala Gaza Strip, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Saturday that the war on Hamas in Gaza will continue for many more months, pushing back against international calls for a ceasefire amid mounting civilian deaths, hunger, and mass displacement in the besieged enclave. Netanyahu thanked the Biden administration for its continued backing, including approval for a new emergency weapons sale, the second this month, and um, previous and, and prevention of a UN Security Council resolution seeking an immediate ceasefire. Israel argues, argues that the ending that ending the war now would mean a victory for Hamas, a stance shared by the Biden administration which at the time, at the same time, urged Israel to do more to avoid harm to Palestinian civilians. 
The health ministry in Gaza said Saturday that more than 21,600 Palestinians have been killed and 56,000 wounded in Israel's air and ground offensive since the October 7th Hamas attack on southern Israel, in which the militants killed at least 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and kidnapped more than 240. The Hamas-run ministry, which does not distinguish between the deaths of civilians and combatants, said 165 Palestinians had been killed over the previous 24 hours. It has said about 70% of those killed had been women and children. Israeli warplanes on Saturday struck the urban refugee camps of Nusrat and Burais in the center of the territory as ground forces pushed deeper into the southern city of Khan Yunus. Even a brief halt in fighting seems unlikely. Egypt, one of the mediators between Israel and Hamas, has proposed a multi-stage plan that would kick off with the swap of hostages for prisoners accompanied by a temporary ceasefire, along the lines of an exchange conducted during a week-long truce in November. Hamas insisted the war must end before it will discuss releasing hostages. Osama Hamdan, a senior Hamas official in Beirut, reiterated that position Saturday, but also told the Associated Press that we have not given any final answer to the Egyptian proposal. Asked about reports of possible progress toward a deal, Netanyahu said Saturday that we may see a possibility, maybe for movement, but he did not want to raise exaggerated expectations. Israel has said it will pursue its offensive until it has dismantled Hamas, a goal viewed by some as unattainable because of the militant group's deep roots in Palestinian society. The war has displaced some 85% of the Gaza Strip's 2.3 million residents, with many following Israeli directives to seek shelter in designated safe areas that have nevertheless been bombed, leaving Palestinians with a sense that nowhere is safe. With Israeli forces expanding their ground offensive, tens of thousands of Palestinians streamed into the already crowded city of Rafah at the southernmost end of Gaza. Thousands of tents and makeshift shacks have sprung up on Rafah's outskirts next to UN warehouses. Displaced people arrived in Rafah on foot or on trucks with, and carts piled high with mattresses. Those who did not find space in overwhelmed shelters pitched tents on roadsides. We don't have water, we don't have enough food. Noor Dar, a displaced woman, said Saturday from the sprawling camp. The kids wake up in the morning wanting to eat, wanting to drink. It took us one hour to find water for them. We couldn't bring them flour. Even when we wanted to take them to toilets, it took us one hour to walk. New Seat resident Mustafa Abu Wawi said a strike hit the home of one of his relatives, killing two people. The Israelis are doing everything to force people to leave, he said over the phone, while searching along with others for four people missing under the rubble. They want to break our spirit and will, but they will fail. We are here to stay. A second strike late Friday in Nusrat targeted the home of a journalist for Al Quds TV, a channel linked to the group Islamic Jihad, whose militants participated in the October 7 attack. The channel said the journalist Jabir Abu Hadros and six family members and six members of his family were killed. Bereaved resident Rami Abu Mossad said sounds of gunfire echoed across the camp overnight, followed by heavy airstrikes Saturday. 
The U.S. State Department said Friday that Secretary of State Antony J. Blinken had told Congress he approved a $147.5 million sale for equipment, including fuses, chargers, and primers needed for 155mm shells Israel brought previously. It marked the second time this month that the Biden administration bypassed Congress to approve an emergency weapons sale to Israel. The department cited the urgency of Israel's defensive needs as a reason for the approval. Blinken made a similar decision December 9, approving the sale to Israel of nearly 14,000 rounds of tank ammunition worth more than $106 million. Both moves have come as President Biden's request for a near $106 billion aid package for Ukraine, Israel, and other national security needs remain stalled in Congress, caught up in a debate over U.S. immigration policy and border security. Some Democratic lawmakers, lawmakers have spoken of making the proposed $14.3 billion in U.S. assistance to its Mideast ally contingent on concrete steps by Netanyahu's government to reduce civilian casualties in Gaza during the war with Hamas. U.S. officials have urged Israel to start shifting from high-intensity combat to more targeted operations, but said they were not imposing a deadline. With more than 120 hostages remaining in Gaza, Israel needs more time, Netanyahu said. As the chief of staff said this week, the war will continue many more months, he told a televised news conference Saturday. My policy is clear. We will continue to fight until we have achieved all the objectives of the war, first and foremost, the annihilation of Hamas and the release of all the hostages. Netanyahu is also at odds with the Biden administration over who should run Gaza after the war. He has rejected the, uh, the U.S.-backed idea that a unified Palestinian government should run both Gaza and parts of the Israeli-occupied West Bank as a precursor to eventual statehood. Instead, he has insisted on open-ended Israeli security control in Gaza without saying what would come next. Meanwhile, more than a week after a UN Security Council resolution called for the unhindered delivery of aid at scale across besieged Gaza, conditions have only worsened, UN agencies said. Officials said the aid entering Gaza remains woefully inaccurate, inadequate. Distribution is hampered by long delays at two border crossings, ongoing fighting, Israeli airstrikes, repeated cuts in internet and phone services, and a breakdown of law and order that makes it difficult to secure aid convoys, they said. Nearly the entire population of Palestine is fully dependent on outside humanitarian aid, said Philippe Lazzarini, head of UNRWA, the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees. A quarter of the population is starving because too few trucks enter with food, medicine, fuel, and other supplies, sometimes fewer than 100 trucks a day, according to UN Daily Reports. UN monitors said operations at the Israeli-run Kerem Shalom crossing halted for four days last week because of security incidents, including a drone strike and the seizure of supplies by desperate Gaza residents. They said the crossing reopened Friday and that a total of 81 aid trucks entered Gaza through Kerem Shalom and the Rafah crossing on the Egyptian border compared with the typical pre-war volume of 500 trucks a day.
Israeli officials, meanwhile, have vowed to bring back more than 100 hostages held by the militants in Gaza. The Israeli military says 168 of its soldiers have been killed since the ground offensive began. Uh, Israel and Hamas remain far apart on the terms of a ceasefire and future hostage prisoner swaps. Egypt's proposed swap and temporary ceasefire would be followed by talks of forming a transitional Palestinian government of experts who would run both Gaza and the Israeli-occupied West Bank. We have been clear that a complete ceasefire is the first step, Hamdan, the Hamas official, said Saturday. It's a position that seemingly derails the Egyptian plan, though Hamdan said conversations are continuing. There are, all, there are also ideas we have received through our brothers in Qatar, and we have not given any final answers so far, he said. This may take some time. We are keen to talk about the, the details because the idea put forward today may develop in different ways and may no longer be raised at all. That was war to last many more months, Netanyahu says, by Wafa Sharafa, Sami Magdi, and Abby Sewell from the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, December 31st, 2023. Sharafa, Magdi, and Sewell write for the Associated Press. All right, here is another one from the uh, Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, January 2nd, 2024. Israel pulling thousands of troops from Gaza. Five brigades will be removed, Army says. Combat focuses on main city and south. Matia Goldenberg, Najib Jobain, and Sami Magdi. Tel Aviv. The Israeli military confirmed Monday that it was pulling thousands of troops out of the Gaza Strip, a step that could clear the way for a new long-term phase of lower-intensity fighting against the militant group Hamas. The confirmation of the planned troop, uh, troop drawdown came the same day that Israel's Supreme Court struck down a key component of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's contentious judicial overhaul plan. Although the plan is not directly connected to the war effort, it was the source of deep divisions in Israel and had threatened the military's readiness before the October 7 Hamas attack that triggered the ongoing war. Politicians warned against reigniting those divisions and harming the national unity that has prevailed throughout the Israel-Hamas war. Netanyahu has vowed to press ahead with the military offensive until Hamas is crushed and the more than 100 hostages still held by the militant group in Gaza are freed. But Israel has come under growing international pressure to scale back an offensive that has led to the deaths of nearly 22,000 Palestinians. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken, who has repeatedly urged Israel to do more to protect Palestinian civilians, is expected in the region next week. In its announcement, the army said that five brigades or several thousand troops would be taken out of Gaza in the coming weeks. Some will return to bases for further training or rest, while many older reservists will go home. The war has taken a toll on the economy by preventing reservists from going to their jobs, running their businesses, or returning to university studies. The Army's chief spokesperson, Rear Admiral Daniel Hungari, did not say whether the withdrawal of some troops reflected a new phase of the war. The objectives of the war require prolonged fighting, and we are preparing accordingly, he told reporters late Sunday. 
The move is in line with the plans that Israeli soldiers have outlined for a low-intensity campaign expected to last for much of the year that focuses on remaining Hamas strongholds. Israel has said it is close to operational control over most of northern Gaza, reducing the need for forces there. Yet fierce fighting has continued in other areas of the Palestinian territory, especially the south, where many of Hamas's forces remain intact and where most of Gaza's 2.3 million people have fled. With tensions remaining high across the region, the U.S. announced Monday that it would be sending an aircraft carrier strike, uh, strike group home and, re- and replacing it with an amphibious assault ship and accompanying warships. Israel has vowed to destroy Hamas's military and governing capabilities in this war. The militant group's October attack on southern Israel killed 1,200 people, and roughly 240 people were taken hostage. Israel responded with an air, ground, and sea offensive that has killed more than 21,900 people in Gaza, two-thirds of them women and children, according to the Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza, which does not differentiate between civilians and combatants in its count. The Israeli military says 173 soldiers have died since it launched its ground operation. Israel also says more than 8,000 militants have been killed without providing evidence. It blames Hamas for the highest civilian death toll, saying the militants embed within the residential areas, including schools and hospitals. The war has displaced about 85% of Gaza's 2.3 million residents, sending swells of people seeking shelter in Israeli-designated safe areas that the military has nevertheless bombed. Palestinians are left with a sense that nowhere is safe. In Khan Yunus, a city in southern Gaza that Israel says is a key Hamas stronghold, residents reported airstrikes and shelling in the west and center of the city. Combat was also reported at urban refugee camps in central Gaza where Israel expanded its offensive last week. An Associated Press reporter saw at least 17 bodies, including those of four children, at a hospital in the central down, central town of Deir al-Bala after a missile struck a house. It's our routine, bombings, massacres, and martyrs, said Saeed Mostafa, a Palestinian from the Nerasat camp. Gaza's health ministry said Monday that 156 people have been killed in the last day. The Israeli military said an airstrike killed Adel Misma, a regional commander of Hamas's elite Nukba forces in Deir al-Bala. In Israel, Kibbutz Biri, one of the communities hit by Hamas on October 7, announced Monday that Elon Weiss, who had been kidnapped, who had been thought to have been kidnapped, is now believed to be dead. His wife Shiri, 53, and daughter Noga, 18, were held in Gaza and released November 25 during a week-long ceasefire. The fighting in Gaza has threatened to spread across the region. Israel has engaged in nearly daily battles with Hezbollah militants in Lebanon to Israel's north and struck Iranian-linked targets in neighboring Syria as well. Meanwhile, Iranian-backed healthy rebels in Yemen have fired long-range missiles at Israel and attacked civilian cargo ships in the Red Sea, disrupting the global shipping trade. The United States has sent warships to the Mediterranean and Red Seas, providing protection for Israel and underscoring concerns the fighting would widen. On Monday,
the U.S. Navy announced that after months of extra duty at sea, the USS Gerald R. Ford aircraft carrier Strike Group will be heading home. The Ford will be replaced by the amphibious assault ship, the USS Bataan, and its accompanying warships, the USS Mesa Verde and the USS Carter Hall. The three vessels had been in the had been in the Red Sea. The Ford was sent to the eastern Mediterranean to be within striking distance of Israel since the day after Hamas's October 7 onslaught. Its accompanying warships had sailed into the Red Sea, where they repeatedly intercepted incoming ballistic missiles and attacked drones fired from Yothi-controlled Yemen. The Ford and the aircraft carrier USS Dwight D. Eisenhower have been part of a two-carrier presence bracketing the Israel-Hamas war. The Eisenhower has recently patrolled near the Gulf of Aden at the mouth of the Red Sea waterway, where many com uh, commercial vessels have come under attack in recent weeks. That was Israel pulling thousands of troops from Gaza by Tia Goldenberg, Najib Jovain, and Sami Magdi from the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, January 2nd, 2024. And here is another story from that same Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, January 2nd, 2024. Netanyahu's judicial overhaul takes a hit. Supreme Court in Israel strikes down a key component of the contentious plan by Joseph Fetterman and Melanie Lidman. Jerusalem. Israel's Supreme Court on Monday struck down a key component of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's contentious judicial overhaul, delivering a landmark decision that threatens to reopen the fissures in Israeli society that preceded the country's ongoing war against Hamas. The planned overhaul sparked months of mass uh, protests threatened to trigger a constitutional crisis between the judicial and legislative branches of government and rattled the cohesion of the powerful military. Those divisions were largely put aside after Hamas militants carried out a bloody cross-border attack in southern Israel on October 7 that triggered a war that has raged in Gaza for nearly three months. But Monday's court decision could reignite those tensions even while the country remains at war. Justice Minister Yariv Levin, a Netanyahu ally, and the architect of the overhaul lambasted the court's decision, saying it demonstrated the opposite of the spirit of unity required these days for the success of our soldiers on the front. The ruling will not discourage us, Levin said without indicating whether the government would try to revive his plan in the short term. As the campaigns are continuing on different fronts, we will continue to act with restraint and responsibility, he said. In Monday's decision, the court narrowly voted to overturn a law passed in July that prevents judges from striking down government decisions they deemed unreasonable. Opponents had argued that Netanyahu's efforts to remove the standard of reasonability opens the door to corruption and improper appointments of unqualified cronies to important positions. The law was the first in a planned overhaul of the Israeli justice system. The overhaul was put on hold after the October 7 attack, in which Hamas killed about 1,200 people and kidnapped 240 others. Israel immediately declared war and is pressing forward with an offensive that Palestinian health officials say has killed nearly 22,000 people in the Gaza Strip. In an 8-7 to decision, 
The Supreme Court justices struck down the law because of the severe and unprecedented harm to the core character of the state of Israel as a democratic country. The justices also voted 12 to 3 that they had the authority to overturn basic laws, major pieces of legislation that serve as a sort of constitution for Israel. It was a significant blow to Netanyahu and his hardline allies, who claim the national legislature, not the high court, should have the final word over the legality of legislation and other key decisions. The justices said the Knesset, or parliament, does not have omnipotent power. Netanyahu's government could seek to ignore Monday's ruling, setting the stage for a constitutional crisis over who has ultimate authority. The court issued its decision because its outgoing president, Esther Hayut, is retiring Monday, is retiring, and Monday was her last day on the job. Netanyahu and his allies announced a sweeping overhaul plan shortly after taking office a year ago. It calls for curbing the power of the judges, including by limiting the Supreme Court's ability to review parliamentary decisions and changing the way judges are appointed. Supporters said the changes aim to strengthen democracy by circumscribing the authority of unelected judges and turning over more powers to elected officials. But opponents see the overhaul as a power grab by Netanyahu, who was on trial for corruption charges and an assault on, on a key watchdog. The Movement for Quality Government in Israel, a good government group that opposed the legislation, called the Supreme Court's ruling a tremendous public victory for those who seek democracy. On an only an unreasonable government, one that acts unreasonably, that makes unreasonable moves, abolishes the reasonability standard, said Eliad Shraga, the group's chairman. Before the Israel-Hamas war, hundreds of thousands of Israelis took to the streets in weekly protests against the government. Among the demonstrators were military reservists, including fighter pilots and members of other elite units who said they would stop reporting for duty if the overhaul was passed. Reservists make up the backbone of the Israeli military. Although the reservists quickly returned to duty in a show of unity after the October 7 attack, it remains unclear what would happen if the overhaul efforts were revived. A resumption of the protests could undermine uh, national unity and affect the military's readiness if soldiers refuse to report for duty. Under the Israeli system, the Prime Minister governs through a majority coalition and parliament, in effect giving him control over the executive and legislative branches of government. As a result, the Supreme Court plays a crucial oversight role. Critics say that by seeking to weaken the judiciary, the Prime Minister and his allies are trying to erode the country's checks and balances and consolidate power over the third independent branch of government. Netanyahu's allies include an array of ultra-nationalists and religious parties with a list of grievances against the court. His allies have called for increased West Bank settlement construction and annexation of the occupied territory, perpetuating military draft exemptions for ultra-Orthodox men and limiting the rights of LGBTQ plus people and Palestinians. The U.S. has previously urged Netanyahu to put the plans on hold and seek a broad consensus across the political spectrum. That was Netanyahu's Judicial Overhaul Takes a Hit by Joseph Fetterman and Melanie Lidman from the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, January 2nd, 2024. Fetterman and Lidman write for the Associated Press. 
right? Continuing from the world section of the Los Angeles Times from Wednesday, January 3rd, 2024, apparent Israeli strike kills senior Hamas figure. The number two political leader of the militant group dies in an apparent in an apartment building in a Beirut suburb by Basim Moreau, Tia Goldenberg, and Wafa Sharafa. Beirut. An apparent Israeli strike near the Lebanese capital killed Hamas's number two political leader Tuesday, marking a potentially significant escalation of Israel's war against the militant group and heightening the risk of a wider Middle East conflict. Saleh Aroy, who was the most senior Hamas figure killed since the war with Israel began, was also a founder of the group's military wing. His death could provoke major retaliation by Lebanon powerful Hezbollah military. The strike hit an apartment in a building in a Shiite district of a suburb of Beirut that is a Hezbollah stronghold. And Hezbollah leader Nassan Nasrallah has vowed to strike back against any Israeli targeting of Palestinian officials in Lebanon. Hezbollah and Israeli military have been exchanging fire almost daily over the Israeli-Lebanese border since Israel's military campaign in Gaza began nearly three months ago. But so far, the Lebanese group has uh, appeared reluctant to dramatically escalate the fighting. A significant response now could send the conflict spiraling into an all-out war on Israel's northern border. Lebanon's state-run national news agency said the strike was carried out by an Israeli drone, and Israeli officials declined to comment. Speaking to reporters, Israeli military spokesman Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari did not directly mention Arori's death, but said, We are focused and remain focused on fighting against Hamas. We are on readiness for any scenario, he added. The killing comes ahead of a visit to the region by U.S. Secretary of State Antony J. Blinken, even as the United States has tried to prevent spread, uh, white, a spread of the conflict, repeatedly warning Hezbollah and its regional supporter, Iran, not to escalate the violence. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has vowed to press ahead with the assault on Gaza until Hamas is crushed and the more than 100 hostages still held by the militant group in Gaza are freed, which he has said could take several more months. At the same time, Israeli officials have increasingly warned in recent days of stepped-up action against Hezbollah unless its cross-border fire stops. Netanyahu and other Israeli officials have repeatedly threatened to kill Hamas leaders wherever they are. The group's October 7 attack from Gaza of southern Israel killed about 1,200 people and some 240 others were taken hostage. Israel claims to have killed a number of mid-level Hamas leaders in Gaza, but this would be the first time it has reached into another country to target the upper leaders, many of whom live in exile around the region. Arori was the deputy of Hamas's supreme political leader, Ismail Haniyeh, and headed the group's presence in the West Bank. He was also a key liaison with Hezbollah. Tuesday's blast shook a residential building in the Beirut suburb of Musharrafe, killing four people, according to the Lebanese news agency. Hamas official Bassem Naim confirmed to the Associated Press that Arori was killed. Hanea said Hamas was more powerful and determined after the attack. They left behind them strong men who will carry the banner after them, he said of those killed. 
Hezbollah called the strike a serious attack on Lebanon, its people, its security, sovereignty, and resistance. We affirm that this crime will never pass without response and punishment, it said. Since the Gaza conflict began, Lebanese people have feared their country could be pulled into a fully-fledged war. Hezbollah and Israel fought a month-long war in 2006 when the Israeli bombardment wreaked heavy destruction in southern Lebanon. Israel's air, ground, and sea assault in Gaza has killed more than 21,900 people in Gaza, two-thirds of them women and children, according to the health ministry in the Hamas-ruled territory. The count does not differentiate between civilians and combatants. The campaign has driven some 85% of Gaza's population from their homes, forcing hundreds of thousands of people into overcrowded shelters or teeming tent camps in Israeli-designated safe areas that the military has nevertheless bombed. Israel's siege of the territory has left a quarter of Gaza residents facing starvation, according to the United Nations. Israel announced Monday that it would withdraw five brigades or several thousand troops from Gaza in the coming weeks. Still, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant said that it would be a mistake to think that Israel is planning on halting the war. The feeling that we will stop soon is incorrect, he said Tuesday. Without a clear victory, we will not be able to live in the Middle East. Israel has said it's close to achieving operational control over most of northern Gaza, where ground troops have been battling militants for over two months. But Gallant said several thousand Hamas fighters are believed to be still in the north, and residents reported clashes in several parts of Gaza City, as well as in the nearby urban Jabilia refugee camp. Fierce fighting has continued in other areas of the Palestinian territory, especially in the south, where many of Hamas's forces remain intact and where most of Gaza's population has fled. Palestinians reported heavy airstrikes and artillery shellings in the southern city of Khan Yunis and farming areas to the east. The Palestinian Red Crescent said Israel bombed its headquarters in the city, killing five. At least 14,000 displaced people are sheltering in the building, it said. Fighting was also underway in and around the building, the built-up uh, refugee camp in central Gaza. The army is issued evacuation orders to people living in parts of the nearby Nusrat camp. A strike Tuesday leveled a building in Nusrat, killing at least eight people, according to officials at the nearby hospital. Associated Press video showed people pulling several children out of the wreckage. In other developments, officials said Israel will defend itself before the United Nations top court against charges that it has engaged in genocide of Palestinians in Gaza. The announcement set the stage for what is likely to be a landmark case in international law. South Africa launched the case Friday at the International Court of Justice at The Hague, saying the Israeli military campaign targeting Hamas has resulted in enough deaths, destruction, and humanitarian crisis in Gaza to meet the threshold of genocide under international law. South Africa asked the court to order Israel to halt its attacks in Gaza. Israel rarely cooperates in international court cases against it, dismissing the United Nations and international tribunals as unfair and biased. Its decision to respond to the charge signals that the government is concerned about potential damage to its reputation. The genocide charge strikes at the heart of Israel's national identity. 
The country needs it sees itself as a bulwark of security for Jews after the Holocaust killed six million Jews, and world support for Israel's creation in Palestine in 1948 was deeply rooted in outrage over Nazi atrocities. The Convention Against Genocide was drawn up by world powers the same year in hopes of preventing similar atrocities. Elon Levy, an official in the Israeli Prime Minister's office, accused South Africa of giving political and legal cover to Hamas. The State of Israel will appear before the International Court of Justice at The Hague to dispel South Africa's absurd blood libel, he said. That was a parent Israeli strike kills senior Hamas figure by Basim Moreau, Tia Goldberg, and Wafa Sharafa from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, January 3rd, 2024. Associated Press writers Moreau, Goldenberg, and Sharafa reported from Beirut, Tel Aviv, and Dira al-Bala, Gaza Strip, respectfully. All right, here's something from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, January 4th, 2024. Israeli court delays law that would protect Netanyahu. The amendment would make it tougher to remove the prime minister from power. From the Associated Press. Jerusalem. A law that would make it harder to remove the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu from office must go into effect only after the next parliamentary election. The country's Supreme Court ruled Wednesday, saying the legislation was clearly crafted for personal reasons. Israeli legislatures passed the law last year as part of the government's contentious legal overhaul plan, which sparked widespread opposition and tore open deep divisions in society. Critics said the law was designed to protect Netanyahu from being deemed unfit to rule over claims of a conflict of interest. He has been working to reshape the justice system while on trial for alleged corruption. The personal affairs of the sitting prime minister were not just a motive for legislating the amendment, but also the dominant justification for its legislation at the time it was enacted, wrote outgoing Chief Justice Esther Hyatt. The amendment's promoters wanted the amendment to enter into force immediately and that it applied to the sitting prime minister. The next parliamentary elections are expected to end in 2026, but could be held before then. That means Netanyahu, who is facing anger over the deadly October 7 Hamas cross-border attack and hostages still being held in the Gaza Strip, is, in theory, exposed until then to being deemed unfit to serve. However, Israel's Attorney General, who historically has had the authority to make that call, hasn't publicly indicated she would. While the court did not outright strike down the law, the ruling is in a 6-5 vote deepens a divide that lingers between overhaul supporters and those who view the court as a bulwark defending Israel's democratic fundamentals. The Movement for Quality Government in Israel, an advocacy group that petitioned against the law, welcomed the ruling and said the Prime Minister cannot create a golden cage for himself while he is on trial. The court, in its decision, restored the logic that disappeared when this despicable law was enacted, said the group's chairman, Eliad Shraga. The ruling comes days after the court overturned the first major piece of the overhaul, in a blow to Netanyahu's government. The government has said that legal changes were meant to restore power to elected officials, but critics said they would append Israel's delicate system of checks and balances. Israelis have found some unity 
after Hamas's October 7 attack and the war it sparked, but the rift over the legal overhaul still looms. Netanyahu's governing coalition, Israel's most religious and nationalist ever, last year passed the amendment known as the Incapacitation Law, which allows a prime minister to be deemed unfit to rule only for medical or mental reasons, health reasons. Under the amendment, only the prime minister or the government has the power to determine a leader's unfitness. The previous version of the law was vague about the circumstances in which a prime minister could be deemed unfit, as well as who had the authority to declare it. But experts said the amendment expressly stripped the Attorney General of the ability to do so. The Attorney General claims Netanyahu violated a conflict of interest agreement by dealing with the legal overhaul while on trial for corruption charges. He faces charges of fraud, breach of trust, and accepting bribes in three separate cases. He denies wrongdoing. His government was pressed ahead with the legal overhaul when Hamas struck in October, uh, killing about 1,200 people and taking about 240 people hostage. It's not clear what the government plans for the legal changes now that the country is at war. That was Israeli court delays law that would protect Netanyahu from the Associated Press. Out of the perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, January 24th, 2024. And from the world section of the same Los Angeles Times, Thursday, January 4th, 2024, Israel's spy chief promises to find all October 7 attackers. The day after Hamas deputy was killed, the Mossad leader says he'll hunt down every militant involved by Tia Goldenberg, Fadi Tawil, and Sami Magdi. Jerusalem. The chief of Israel's Mossad intelligence service vowed Wednesday that the agency would hunt down every Hamas member involved in the October 7 attack on Israel, no matter where they are. He made the pledge a day after the deputy head of the Palestinian militant group was killed in a suspected Israeli strike near Beirut. Israel has refused to comment on reports that it carried out the killing, but the comments by David Barnea appeared to be the strongest indication yet it was behind the blast. It made a comparison to the aftermath of the slayings at the Munich Olympics in 1972 when Mossad agents tracked down and killed Palestinian militants involved in abducting and killing Israeli athletes. Israel was on high alert Wednesday for an escalation with Lebanon's powerful Hezbollah militia after the strike near the Lebanese capital killed Saleh Aroy, the most senior Hamas member slain since the war in Gaza erupted nearly three months ago. The strike in Hezbollah's southern Beirut area stronghold could cause the low-intensity fighting along the Lebanon border to boil over into all-out war. In a speech Wednesday evening, Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah promised revenge, repeating his group's statement that this dangerous crime of Arroy's killing will not go without response and without punishment. Nasrallah said Hezbollah has so far been careful in its strategic calculus in the conflict, balancing the need to support Gaza and to take into account Lebanese national interests. But if the Israelis launch a war on Lebanon, the group is ready for a fight without limits. They will regret it, he said. It will be very, very, very costly. Arroy's killing provided a morale boost for Israelis still reeling from the October 7 attack as the militants put up stiff resistance in Gaza and continued to hold scores of hostages. Barnea said the Mossad is committed 
to settling accounts with the murderers who raided the Gaza envelope, referring to the area of southern Israel attacked on October 7. He vowed to pursue everyone involved, directly or indirectly, including planners and envoys. It'll take time, as it took time after the Munich massacre, but we will put our hands on them wherever they are, he said. Barnea was speaking at the funeral of former Mossad head Zavi Zamir, who died at age 98 a day earlier. Zamir headed the intelligence agency at the time of the 1972 Munich Olympic attack in which Palestinian militants killed 11 members of the Israeli delegation. Israel subsequently killed members of the Black September militant group who had carried out the attack. Hezbollah and the Israeli military have been exchanging fire almost daily over the Israeli-Lebanese border since the war in Gaza began. But Nasrallah has appeared reluctant to escalate it further, perhaps fearing a repeat of the Monitoring 2006 war in which Israel heavily bombed Beirut and southern Lebanon. At the same time, Hezbollah also faces pressure to show support for its ally, Hamas. Nasrallah's comments on balancing interests reflected the group's wariness of being blamed by Lebanese if, it ex- if its exchanges with Israel spiral into an all-out war that brings destruction similar to the 2006 war. It avoid- he avoided specifics on any possible reprisal for Ari's killing, though he said that he would address the issue further in a speech Friday. But, he said, if Israel attacks Lebanon, it would be in the national interest to fight back. We are not afraid of war, he said. If the enemy thinks about launching a war against Lebanon, then we will fight back without ceilings and without limits. Hezbollah boasts an arsenal of tens of thousands of rockets and missiles, as well as different types of drones. The United States has sought to prevent any widening of the conflict, including by deploying two aircraft carriers and other military assets to the region. Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken was expected in the region this week. Nasrallah praised Ari as well as the group's October 7 attack, saying it brought light back onto the Palestinian cause after it was nearly forgotten. He said Israel has so far failed in all its objectives in the Gaza war and was suffering damage to its international reputation. The Israeli military chief of staff, Lieutenant Colonel Hersey Halevi, visited Israel's northern border with Lebanon on Wednesday, saying we are on high readiness in the north. Hamas leaders clearly expect, it, expect Hezbollah to support its cause. In an interview Saturday, three days before Ari's killing, the Associated Press asked Beirut-based Hamas political official Osama Hamdan if the group was worried about the possibility of Israel assassinating its officials in Lebanon. Hamdan predicted that Hezbollah would not let that go unpunished and an all-out war would ensue. So what would Israel want to do that? So why would Israel want to do that? Does it want a war in Lebanon? He asked. War can happen if Israel acts wrongly and aggressively. A war might not occur if Israel takes a step back and acts in a way that is not aggressive against Lebanon. Hezbollah said Wednesday that its fighters carried out at least eight attacks against Israeli posts along the border, including four using heavy warhead Birkin rockets. The statement did not directly link its actions to Ari's killing. Ari was the deputy of Hamas's supreme political leader, Ismail Haneyeh, and headed the group's presence in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. He was also key liaison with Hezbollah. A U.S. official confirmed 
that the Israeli military carried out the strike that killed Aria, Aria and did not give the White House advance notice. The official spoke on the condition of anonymity because the official was not authorized to discuss the operation. The strike would be the first time since the war that Israel has reached into another country to target Hamas leaders, many of whom live in exile around the region. The Mossad chief's comments suggested more assassinations of Hamas figures were to come, echoing threats by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to kill Hamas leaders wherever they are. The group's October 7 attack from Gaza into southern Israel killed about 1,200 people and some 240 others were taken hostage. The focus of the war remains on the Gaza Strip, where Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant said Israel is seeking a clear victory over Hamas, which has ruled the territory since 2007. Israel's air, ground, and sea assault in Gaza has killed more than 22,300 people, two-thirds of them women and children, according to the health ministry in the Hamas-ruled territory. The country does not dis- uh, differentiate between civilians and combatants. The war has driven some 85% of Gaza's population from their homes, forcing hundreds of thousands of people into overcrowded shelters or teeming tent camps in Israeli-designated safe areas that the military has nevertheless bombed. A quarter of Gaza's population faces starvation, according to the United Nations, as Israeli restrictions and heavy fighting hinder aid delivery. The unprecedented death and destruction has led South Africa to accuse Israel of genocide in a case filed with the International Court of Justice allegations Israel has strongly denied and vowed to contest. Still, Israel appears far from achieving its goals of crushing Hamas and returning the estimated 129 hostages still held by the group after more than 100 were released in a ceasefire deal in November. Gallant said several thousand Hamas fighters remain in northern Gaza where Israeli troops have been battling militants for nearly three months. Heavy fighting is also underway in central Gaza and the southern city of Khan Yunus, where Israeli officials say Hamas's military structure is still largely intact. Yahya Sinwar, Hamas's top leader in Gaza, and his deputies have thus far eluded Israeli forces. That was Israel's spy chief promises to find all October 7 attackers by Tia Goldenberg, Fadi Tawil, and Sami Magdi from the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, January 4, 2024. Associated Press writers Goldenberg, Tawil, and Magdi reported from Jerusalem, Beirut, and Cairo, respectively. AP writers Abby Sewell, Basim Moreau, and Beirut, and Beirut, and Tara Kopp in Washington contributed to this report. And here we have a final one from the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, January 5, 2024. Israeli defense chief outlines next phase of war. Yoav Gallant's call for a scaled-down new combat approach in northern Gaza comes ahead of Blinken visit by Najib Jobain and Jack Jeffrey. Rafa Gaza Strip Israel's defense minister on Thursday laid out his plan for the next phase of the war in Gaza, describing how Israeli forces would shift to an apparently scaled-down new combat approach in northern Gaza, while continuing to fight Hamas in the south of the territory for as long as necessary. Ahead of a visit by U.S. Secretary of State Antony J. Blinken, Yoav Gallant also outlined a proposal for how Gaza would be run if Hamas is defeated, with Israel keeping security control while an undefined 
Israeli-guided Palestinian body runs day-to-day -day administration and the U.S. and other countries oversee rebuilding. Israel has come under heavy international pressure to spell out a post-war vision but so far has not done so. The issue was likely to be on the agenda in Blinken's talks this weekend in Israel and other countries in the region. The United States has pressed Israel to shift to lower-intensity military operations in Gaza that more precisely target Hamas after nearly three devastating months of bombardment and ground assaults. The vagueness of many of Gallant's provisions made it difficult to assess how much they mesh with the U.S. calls. The document issued by Gallant was titled A Vision for Phase 3 of the War, and Gallant's office said the phase had not yet begun. And also said the ideas were Gallant's and not official policy, which, could, which would have to be set by Israel's war and security cabinets. Gallant, who was a member of both cabinets, may be aiming to put his personal plan before the Americans ahead of others in Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition, which includes hard-right members likely to want a tougher approach. After nearly three months, Israel's bombardment and ground assaults have killed more than 22,400 people in Gaza, more than two-thirds of them women and children, according to the health ministry in Hamas-run territory. The ministry count does not differentiate between civilians and combatants. Israel has vowed to destroy Hamas after its October 7 attack in which militants killed some 1,200 people and abducted around 240 others. Much of northern Gaza, which troops invaded two months ago, has been flattened beyond recognition. Associated Press video from Gaza City showed people wandering through a shattered landscape with large fields of broken concrete and splintered wood and streets lined with toppled buildings. With a focus now in the south, Israeli forces are battling Hamas militants in the southern city of Khan Yunus and in urban refugee camps in the center of the territory. Some 85% of Gaza's 2.3 million people have been driven from their homes and squeezed into smaller slivers of the territory. Israel's siege of the territory has caused a humanitarian crisis with a quarter of the population starving because not enough supplies are entering, according to the UN. At the same time, airstrikes and shelling across Gaza continue to destroy houses, burying families, taking shelter inside. On Thursday, a strike flattened a house in Mawasi, a small rural strip on Gaza's southern coastline where Israel, Israel's military has said Palestinians should flee to escape the combat zone. The blast killed a man and his wife, seven of their children, and three other children ages 5 to 14, according to a list of the dead who arrived at Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus. There was no immediate response from Israel's military. Gallant's statement underlined that the war would go on until Hamas's military and government capabilities are eliminated and the more than 100 hostages still in captivity are returned. In the north, the statement said, Forces will shift to a new approach that includes raids, destruction of tunnels, air and ground activities, and special operations. The aim would, uh, would be the erosion of the remaining pre Hamas presence. There was no word whether northern Gaza's population, which has almost entirely been driven south, would be allowed to return. The statement did not clarify how the new approach would differ from current operations, but Gallant has previously said it would be a lower scale.
Israel began last week to withdraw some uh, some troops from northern Gaza, where the military says it has largely gained operational control after weeks of heavy fighting with Hamas. Still, Galantes said several thousand Hamas figures remain there. In the south, he said, fighting would continue as long as is deemed necessary. After the war, the statement said Israel will keep security control, taking military action in Gaza when necessary to ensure there are no threats and maintaining inspections of all goods entering the territory. Galant said there would be no Israeli civilians in Gaza, ruling out calls by some of Israel's far right for a return of Jewish settlers to the territory. Israel withdrew its troops and settlers from Gaza in 2005 after a 38-year presence. Palestinian entities, apparently local civil servants or communal leaders, would run the territory, with Israel providing information uh, to guide civilian operations, the statement said, without elaborating. A multinational task force led by the U.S. would be in charge of rebuilding. The apparent picture of an Israeli-dominated Palestinian administration for Gaza differs starkly from the U.S. calls for a revitalized Palestinian authority to take control of the territory and a start to new negotiations toward a creating a Palestinian state alongside Israel. Netanyahu and other Israeli officials have rejected the idea. An apparent Israeli strike that killed a top Hamas leader in Beirut this week has stirred fresh fears that the conflict could expand into other parts of the Middle East, a prospect that is also likely to be high on Blinken's agenda. The killing of Sameh Aroy prompted warnings of retaliation from Hamas's ally, the Lebanese Hezbollah militia. But there was no immediate escalation in the daily exchanges of rocket fire and shells between Hezbollah and the Israeli military over the two countries' borders. Regional tensions climbed as a U.S. airstrike killed an Iranian-backed militia leader in Iraq and as Yemen's Houthi rebels continue attacks on ships in key Red Sea shipping lanes. At the same time, Israel has stepped up warnings of tougher military action against Hezbollah unless it pulls its fighters out of the border region, as called for un or under a U.N. Broker 2006 ceasefire. Israel says that is the only way tens of thousands of Israelis who evacuated from communities in the north can return. Galan said Thursday that there was a short window of time for diplomacy with Hezbollah. But he said Israel was determined to bring about a new reality in the northern arena which will enable the secure return of our citizens. That was Israeli Defense Chief Outline's next phase of war by Najib Jobain and Jack Jeffrey from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, January 5th, 2024. Jobain and Jeffrey write for the Associated Press. And now let's move on to some entertainment news. This is from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, December 24th, 2023. Benny Safdie is keeping it real, but not comfortable. The indie actor-director's breakout year culminates in Showtime series The Curse by Whitney Friedlander. When Benny Safdie began doing stand-up while in high school on New York City's Upper West Side, he created a character named Zach Malden. Zach's shtick wasn't, that, wasn't just that he bombed. Uh, it was that this character performed so poorly that as his maker describes it, his whole point of existence was to go out on stage and bomb. 
Bomb not in a way that was just bad jokes, but bomb in a way that was 100% believable to the audience that this guy had no idea that he wasn't funny, Safdie recalled in a recent Zoom conversation. I would go and dressed in that mindset, be the guy through and through, and talk to people as him. That was part of the thing. People like to use the term Kafkaske, Kafkasek, to explain dark and troublesome characters and situations. Safdie's approach is more Kaufman-esque, like the late comedian Andy Kaufman, who is one of Safdie's idols. He thrives on making people uncomfortable. When you feel uncomfortable, it's almost like you're feeling somebody else's emotions, Safdie explains. He says that with a lot of media, the work is doing a lot of things to come to you with as minimal effort on your part as possible. I think that it is important for you to kind of be pulled off of your seat to wherever you need to go. You need to see people's awkward silences. You need to see people feel uncomfortable. But in addition to that, you need to understand why they're feeling that way. So you need to have seen the context that got them to that place. This need to let the uncomfortableness fester and relish the, minu the minute has long been part of Safdie's career ethos. I'm very obsessed with realism and what that does to people when they watch it or experience it, he says. Rising to notoriety through the indie film world with his brother and filmmaker partner Josh, the Safdie brothers, as they're colloquially known, created projects like the Robert Pattinson-led family crime drama Good Time and Uncut Gems, a critical darling that cast Adam Sandler as an indebted gambler addict working in New York City's jewelry district. It also gave actress model Julia Fox her breakout role as the paramour of Sandler's character, Howard. And Safdie also made scene-stealing meals out of some acting roles. In addition to starring opposite Pattinson in Good Time, he is known for portraying a young Joel Wax, the long-serving L.A. City Council member and mayoral candidate in Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza. But if you're going to pinpoint exactly what set when Safdie's name went mainstream, it probably wouldn't be. It probably would be 2023. Himself broad-shouldered with full eyebrows and a pile of thick, dark hair, he played the lumbering turncoat-slash-comic relief Edward Teller in writer-director Christopher Nome's Oppenheimer and the best dad a kid could hope for in writer-director Kelly Freeman Craig's adaptation of the Judy Bloom novel, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, a story that teaches acceptance of others' religious ide ideologies as much as it does menstruation and puberty. A few days after this interview took place, it was announced that Safdie would direct Dwayne Johnson in a biopic about Mark Kerr, the MMA fighter also known for his addiction to painkillers. On television, Safdie and his brother were executive producers of the HBO documentary series Telemarketers, directed by Sam Lippman Stern and Adam Bahala Lau. Using archival footage that Lippman Stern shot of himself and former co-worker Patrick J. Pespas, the miniseries exposes a telemarketing scheme in such a profound way that it rises through several federal agencies and the halls of Congress. He also partnered with the rehearsals Nathan Fielder, another, another talent whose brand is uncomfortable, to create the Showtime series The Curse. Starring Fielder and Emma Stone as Asher and Whitney, a couple attempting to make an eco-friendly HGTV show, and Safdie as Dougie, 
their director and Asher's childhood frenemy. The uh, curse is a cringy examination of how some good intentions can have extreme side effects. In his review, Times TV critic Robert Lloyd noted that The Curse, which is currently airing weekly, is not a comedy and doesn't seem to want to be. Yet many of the incidents could, with a few adjustments, launch an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. I don't think we evaluate things in terms of awkward or extreme, Filter tells the Times via email. There just has to be a core honesty to each moment. I feel a lot of the discomfort is coming from watching characters that care too much. How honest that caring is to the character is up for debate, but there is a palpable and real desperation to be better, in some form, but without the path of how we get it done. He adds, when the execution fails, these painful fissures end up forming interpersonally between people. These moments came out of the writing, and as the characters get more desperate, they take bigger swings. I see it all the time in real life, and it felt like rich territory for the show. The impetus for the curse was a real-life event. Similar to what happens to his character, someone told Fielder that he'd been hexed when he'd refused them charity, and he then felt the need to rectify the situation and Safdie's own obsession with home-flipping programs, especially the ones that don't acknowledge their culpability in gentrification. He remembers watching a compilation of these shows on a plane ride to Los Angeles. One had the slogan, If you don't like your neighborhood, change it. Reality TV, it's always brushed off as kind of non-nothing media, and not kind of non-nothing medium, but a lot of my inspiration comes from that kind of stuff, Safdie says. He name-checks programs like Judge Judy and Kitchen Nightmares before continuing. You have these characters who are in a framework, but because it's so perfectly manicured, it has a formula. He and Fielder also talked about inverted detective stories like the classic Peter Falk series Columbo programs that tell you what happens at the beginning so you're not so much guessing who committed the crime as learning why they did it. It becomes a study of human emotion. How does that person look guilty? How does that person lie, Safdie says. These are all really interesting things because if we think about it, when you see somebody lying and you know they're lying, you know that person better than you ever have. He applies this logic to the guilt of lineage that Stone's Whitney experiences in The Curse. She desperately wants to distance herself from her wealthy parents, played by Corbin Burnson and Constance Schulman. But she also uses that privilege to make her feel superior to them, buying friends expensive things they didn't really want or personally paying shoplifters tabs when they steal from her store instead of pressing charges. When you look at somebody and they're doing the right thing, that should be enough for you because, hey, the end result is that they are helping, Safdie says. But when you go further as a human being, uh, as a human being should, you see potential and you see a reason and you see motive. The, it was imperative to Safdie that the curse used jazz legend Alice Coltrane's hypnotic and soaring mediation, meditation music as an overlay to the making of Whitney and Astra's fictional show and other images in the very real filming location of Española, New Mexico. Safdie says he's even wrote a letter to Coltrane's son, jazz saxophonist Ravi Coltrane, and the estate lawyers telling them when her songs come in, in the show, it's not judging what's happening. But it almost exists like an emotional closed captioning.
The music is there to not even clarify anything, but it's putting you in a state of mind to maybe see a path, Safi says. I think that's what's so important about her music in particular, because it does feel like she had access to something that I'll never have access to. And I'm in awe of that. She was able to not only verbalize it, but make such beautiful music with the organ and the harp. Sapti, who says he's almost be he almost became a, psych a physicist, compares Coltrane's music to string theory, noting, there's all these vibrations that exist, and then they form bigger things. Some audiences have questioned if the curse is a conversation on Jewish mysticism, as both Fielder's and Safdie's characters have, like them, Jewish heritage, and Stone's character is a Jewish convert. It also was promoted with a premise described as how an alleged curse disturbs the relationship of a newly married couple as they try to conceive a child while co-starring on their problematic new HGTV show, Philanthropy. Safdie says the long line wasn't his, uh, his and Fielder's idea, but Judaism is a big part of the show, he concedes. Judaism, what I like about it, it is, there's a lot of concepts within it that aren't necessarily religious. He says, giving the example of breaking a glass at a wedding. The tradition has different interpretations, but he said he was taught that at the happiest moment in your life, we are going to break a glass to remind you how fragile that moment is, and that there's sadness and basically that everything could fall apart. He also thinks there might have been something kismet about filming in this area of New Mexico, where locals like Edward Martinez readily offered their own businesses and homes as locations. Martinez also ended up with a small part on the show playing contractor Freckle. It also meant that the creators could use their platform to discuss actual conditions experienced by Native people, especially those who live in a pueblo near Española, an irony given that this is a goal of st a goal Stone's tone-deaf do-gooder wants for her renovation show. Once we settled on Española, we knew we were going to dive head-on into a lot of things that would be problematic to talk about, Safdie says. Even though we picked it, we felt forced. Once you're there... You really have to understand it. We uh, we wanted to tell the most realistic portrayal of the town for them. The curse, as well as Oppenheimer, which also was largely filmed in New Mexico, meant Safdie had to challenge himself artistically too. Most of his projects until now heavily relied on New York City's unique realism. Not only did he have to adjust to more laid-back pace in the in the world beyond the Hudson River, a day of running errands before heading to set for the curse, was derailed because the place that made the egg sandwich like he, he liked was too swamped to do takeout orders, he said. There was something really awesome about, about being able to explore a new place and a new landscape. There's browns and there's all these new colors there. And while Safdie does acknowledge that his projects from this year come, from, come with some kind of social or political message, it's not necessarily his intent to create culturally con conscious content. As you make the project, you're just doing it, he says. When it's, when it's done is when you can kind of sit back and understand where a lot of this stuff came from. With telemarketers specifically, he says, I like the message that these guys tried to stand up to power. I'm so proud of where that ended up. 
uh, with that with that show because it really does speak to this idea that you could have taken that exact same footage and cut together some kind of weird Christopher Guest style thing. And I love Christopher Guest. But that wouldn't be right for this because I don't want to make fun of anybody's safety ads. A lot of the time, I'm watching an edit and I'll be like, okay, let's not put that in there because it's going to hurt people's ability to connect and they'll be able to write off the character too easily. He also He's also inspired by the early work of British writer-director Mike Lay, noting that in those films, when somebody leaves the room, what happens? It's just studying human behavior, he says. Looking at humans like that, inevitably you're going to come into the moral question. Because that's what you do every day, right? You're constantly making these minor judgments of whatever it is. The irony may be that Sapti says all of this while looking extremely comfortable himself. He's wearing a large white sweatshirt that his wife, Ava, gave him. It has a picture pro promoting the Super Fight, a 1987 boxing match between Marvin Hagler and Sugar Ray Leonard. An avowed boxing fan, Sapti says... There's something about that camaraderie that I find endlessly inspiring and that you can get punched in the face and say thank you to the other person at the end of the day. But this fight is particularly noteworthy, he says. Marvin Hagler, when he got the draw in this fight, he quit because he realized, I won that fight. I know I won that fight. And he was so upset that they didn't give it to him, he just stopped boxing, Sapti explains, adding he knew he was comfortable enough to make that decision and be authentic to himself and move on. That was Benny Zappi is Keeping It Real But Not Comfortable by Whitney Friedlander from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, December 24th, 2023. All right, now we move on to this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, December 25th, 2023. Maestro Misses the Man's Essence. It's a compelling tale of Leonard Bernstein's life offstage, but can't capture his genius by Mark Swed. Music critic. Maestro is pretty good. At least that appears to be the overall verdict from critics and audiences, 80% and 85% positive ratings respectively on Rotten Tomatoes. In my sphere, the classical music community reaction has been a collective sigh of relief. The Leonard Bernstein biopic is not mean-spirited as Tar about a fictional conductor and Bernstein prodigy. Besides being a great conductor, composer, pianist, and educator, Bernstein wrote a winning bestseller, Joy of Music, and thankfully Maestro is not joyless. At the world premiere of the film in Venice, Italy, Bernstein's three children were seen dancing in the aisles as the credits rolled. As the, at the Chinese Theater in Hollywood, where I saw Maestro as part of the AFI Fest, Jamie Bernstein uh, jubilantly introduced the screening by saying that Bradley Cooper, the film's director and star, nailed her dad. Ditto Carrie Mulligan, who portrays her mother, actor Felicia Montelgrave Bernstein. One of the reasons why Maestro comes across as pretty good, or maybe even a little better than that, is because it's not really about music. Cooper was strongly influenced by Jamie Bernstein's memoir, Famous Father Girl, and in fine Hollywood fashion, better... Uh, better realize is not what uh, made her father famous, but what he was really like, the man behind the myth. Maestro is seemingly an ironic tale, title. 
as the first American-born conductor to become music director of the New York Philharmonic in 1957, Bernstein did away with many old-world formalities and grand maestro-esque titles. He was a Lenny to just about everybody. Bisexual, Bernstein began an affair in 1971 with a dazzlingly brilliant young man from Pasadena, Thomas Cawthron, which, when discovered by Felicia, led to a breakup of the Bernstein's marriage. Tom happened to be a classmate of mine at Pasadena High School, and we became good friends. He's Tommy and Maestro. He never would have put, uh, put up with, uh, with that from anyone other than Bernstein, and dismissed in the film as little more than a casual attraction. Tom and Lenny lived together for a predictably incompatible year. Tom had little patience for Lenny's late-night bouts of insecurity, and by his telling, was able to trim some of the excesses from Bernstein's 1973 Norton Lectures, The Unanswered Question, at Harvard University. Bernstein returned to Felicia when she was diagnosed with cancer in 1976, and her death in 1978 was a terrible trauma for him. He never appeared to get over it. Fraught family life is obvious dram uh, dramatic biopic fodder. But left out of this saga was the importance of Tom, who collaborated with Bernstein until Tom's death from AIDS, reportedly, in 1987. Other than this, the glimpses of family life are no doubt accurate. Cooper consulted with the Bernstein siblings, and they gave him permission to shoot at the family house in Connecticut. Makeup makes Cooper look like a close facsimile of the old Bernstein and a sort of facsimile of the dashing younger one. Likewise, Cooper convincingly mimics the voice of the elder Lenny. He sounds unpleasantly shrilled as the hyperactive young conductor and composer taking classical music, Broadway, and ballet by storm. Cooper accurately copies Bernstein's extravagant conducting style, but he lacks the mysterious magic and magneticism that could hold you and your emotions prisoner. Bernstein wasn't an actor he was seeking. He was a seeker. Bernstein wasn't an actor. He was a seeker. I have never witnessed the kind of shamanistic power in a performance that Bernstein, at his most elevated, could produce. Love or hate his gestures, they are Bernstein in the flesh making music, and they cannot be transferred to anyone else. That Lenny's life was chaotic hardly comes as a surprise. He was drawn to many things. He wrote groundbreaking Broadway scores, including West Side Story. He conducted with far more animation and for a long time to the scorn of musicians, critics, and uptight symphony goers who wanted their music handed to them pristine. He wrote classical works that dealt with spiritual crises. It was often said he was the greatest communicator music has ever known. His young people's concerts with the New York Philharmonic, nationally televised in the mid-50s and early 60s, attest to that. They brilliantly demystified classical music to millions of viewers, young and old. I was one of them. How much Bernstein's private life it personifies such artistry is always going to be a matter of interpretation. He obviously had a huge libido. He was drawn to an unprecedentedly wide range of musical activities and interests. He had an overpowering social conscience and involved himself in political activities. He was highly literate and delved deeply and tirelessly into philosophy, psychology, and religion. He had an intense relationship with Judaism, questioning everything. He was gregarious and needed people. He was strikingly handsome and exuded sex appeal. 
who was a chain smoker to the end and drank way too much, put on weight in his 60s, and had insomnia. He died in 1990 at 72 of emphysema. He was, above all, a conductor. Call him Lenny, but do what he tells you, whether you like it or not. He was on the road a lot of the time, and it is hardly surprising that Bernstein would have a, a varied hyperactive sex life. But by all accounts, he was a loving father and profoundly devoted in his own way to Felicia. There is enough interest in this for a pretty good Hollywood movie. But that isn't what made Bernstein exceptional. It is everything else. The fact is, Bernstein didn't have all that much time for family. He was doing a thousand things. When home, moreover, he worked like crazy, composing, studying scores, reading, and writing. He was said to have practiced the piano very little. In the end, Lenny's love for music was the love he could share with the world, but that is far more difficult for an actor to convey. In addition, we've seen so much Bernstein on screen than, than anyone else tries to look like an AI fake. Copying Bernstein's conducting is even more problematic. Cooper impressively mimics Bernstein's movement, movements in a performance of the apotheosis of Mahler's Second Symphony at the Eli Cathedral in London, which Bernstein filmed. But you can't mimic essence. Don't copy me, Bernstein regularly told student conductors. Worse, though, is the soundtrack. Bits and pieces of Bernstein's music mainly with Yannick Nizet Sigwin conducting the London Symphony Orchestra. The recorded sound is bombastic, instrumental balances grotesque, the conducting bland. Had Maestro explored Bernstein as musician and shaman more thoroughly, it would have had to show that this soundtrack, which needs to be the heart of the film, go against everything Bernstein stood for. The good news is that Maestro may turn out to be good enough to promote a small wave of Maestro mania. Avoid the soundtrack recording at all costs. It is a headache-making mixed track from Bernstein Hell. But Bernstein's career happens to have been very well documented on recording and video, and nearly all of it remains readily available on vinyl, CD, DVD, Blu-ray, and streaming. Watch a young people's concert, and you'll likely find one is not enough. If you want to know what Bernstein really thought about love, listen to his serenade after Plato's Symposium, a love letter to Felicia that is also a warning that he was a rapturous and vivacious lover with an endless appetite. Bernstein's recordings of this quasi-violent concerto with Gidon Kramer as soloist make the rapture absolutely real. That was Maestro Misses the Man's Essence by Mark Sweat, music critic, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, December 25th, 2023. All right, let's go into this one from the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, December 31st, 2023. Abdul accuses producer of sexual assault. American Idol judge alleges that boss Nigel Lithgow attacked her twice on his shows by Jen Yamato. Paula Abdul accused American Idol and So You Think You Can Dance executive producer Nigel Lithgow of sexual assault in a, Los Angeles in a lawsuit filed Friday in Los Angeles. Abdul, who appeared as a judge on American Idol from 2002 to 09 and on dance competition SYTYCED from 2015 to 16, alleges that boss and on-air co-star Lithgow sexually assaulted her twice during her tenures on his shows, according to multiple reports. 
She also alleges she, su she suffered bullying and harassment and gender pay discrimination while serving as a prominent public face of the hit shows. According to the suit, the first alleged assault occurred in a hotel elevator in the 2000s while Abdul 61 and Lithgow 74 were on the road filming an early season of American Idol. Deadline reported. Abdul alleges that the executive producer shoved her against the wall, grabbed her genitals and breasts, and began shoving his tongue down her throat before she escaped and reported the incident to her representatives. The second assault is uh, as alleged to have occurred in 2015, when Abdul appeared as a season 12 judge on So You Think You Can Dance alongside executive producer and co-creator Lithgow. Abdul alleges that she was invited to what she believed was a professional dinner at Lithgow's home, only for Lithgow to force himself on her as she sat on his couch before she pushed him off and fled. Abdul alleges that she additionally witnessed Lithgow groping her assistant without her consent during filming of So You Think You Can Dance that year, according to Variety, and that she feared retaliation should she speak out. According to the lawsuit, Abdullah's contracts on the shows barred her from disclosing confidential or derogatory information about other judges, hosts, or producers. The lawsuit names as defendants Lithgow and production companies 19 Entertainment, Fremantle Media North America, American Idol Productions, and Dance Nation Productions on counts of sexual assault slash battery, uh, sexual harassment, gender violence, and negligence. Forever Your Girl singer, dancer, and choreographer Abdul rose to fame in the 1980s before building a second career in TV with her popular appearances on, the sh on shows including American Idol and So You Think You Can Dance and Dancing with the Stars. In 2009, the veteran judge announced her departure from Idol following reports of tension amid contractual negotiations over her compensation. Abdul's lawsuit was filed in Los Angeles County Superior Court under this year's Sexual Abuse and Cover-Up Accountability Act, which allows limited windows for certain civil sexual abuse claims otherwise outside of the statute of limitations to be filed. Representatives for Abdul and Lithgow did not immediately respond to requests for comment. Other recent high-profile lawsuits filed under the act have levied sexual assault allegations against Jermaine Jackson and former Recording Academy Chief Mike Green. Sean Diddy Combs, Antonio L.A. Reid, and Aerosmith Steven Tyler have been sued under a similar New York law. That was Abdul Accuses Producer of Sexual Assault by Jen Yamato from the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, December 31st, 2023. All right, let's move on now to some articles from the L.A. Jewish Home for January 4th through the 17th, 2024, Volume 2, Number 10. And we start off with this one from uh, the Dear Readers section. And it says, Dear Readers, Jewish history has always involved the cycle of very highs and very low lows, both spiritually and physically. We will always be chosen and always be hated. Today is no different than it was back in Egypt thousands of years ago. It is also known that the higher a Jew rises, the lower he falls, and then he rises again. This is the trajectory of the Jewish nation collectively and individually. At the beginning of Parsha Shimas, Yaakov, his sons, and their families, totaling 70 people, were invited by Pharaoh to settle in the land of Goshen. 
the Israelim prosper economically, thereby increasing the Egyptian economy shortly after their seven years of plenty, as interpreted by Yosef in Pharaoh's dream, and also increase in size to almost three million people. Life is good, good for the Jews and good for the land where the Jews are living. But now the Egyptians realize that the Jews are prospering too much, becoming too many. We welcomed them, but we didn't really want them to succeed this much. So begins the new pharaoh's plan for a Jewish genocide, throw all the baby boys into the river. Sounds like from the river to the sea. Then comes the birth of Moshe Rabinu, born in secrecy, hidden, and miraculously kept alive. Many miracles occurred for, for Moshe to survive. First, his parents had to reunite because they had separated in fear of having more children as many couples did during this time. Then he had to survive. He was hidden in his home from the very beginning and not found by those who searched homes for baby boys. Only when he grew too large to hide, he was put in the Nile, watched over, and saved by none other than the Egyptian princess who raised him in the home of a genocidal evil ruler. We would assume that Moshe would be brought up as an Egyptian, completely assimilated, but instead it was another miracle for his own it was another miracle that his own mother nursed him and cared for him as a young child, instilling in him Judaism and its principles, which later became his guiding light. After Moshe kills an Egyptian who will go and tell on him, he flees to Midian to save his life. When Moshe is saved in Midian at the moment, the situation for the Jews in Egypt gets worse. It's at this point when Moshe sees the burning bush and Hashem has remembered B'nai Yisrael and is ready to take them out of Mitzrayim. Not only will the Jews leave Egypt, but they will leave with riches and be brought to the Promised Land. And while traveling there, they would get the Torah, a precious gift from Hashem, an everlasting link that can be passed down forever from one Jewish generation to the next. However, even after Hashem makes the promise to Moshe, Pharaoh continues to make the Jews' lives more bitter while refusing to let them leave after Moshe's repeated requests. For the Jews in Egypt, things are getting worse, not better. Will Hashem save them like he promises? Their babies are being murdered, thrown callously into the river. They have to work daily, down, uh, doing relentlessly backbreaking work, which kills many of them. Men are living apart from their families for fear of having more children. It's worse than a war, because they have no ability to fight. We are like the burning bush, always on fire, never consumed. We are forever in danger of being destroyed, but we will never be, because Hashem has promised to redeem us time and time again. The world seems very dark these days, but we've been here before. And while we are living through this lowly low, there will be another high. Just like when we were redeemed from Egypt to be given the Torah in the desert and then arrive in Yeretzet Yisrael, Hashem has some wonderful gift he has prepared for us. We just need to believe in it and wait to receive it. That is from the Dear Readers section, and it is by Ariella Kaufman, the managing editor. All right, and now let's go to the Around the Communities section, and uh, we start off with this one Los Angeles Jewish businesses unite to support Israel. Local community member and father. Eyal Dahan has been in Israel since October 7 to help those in Israel in any, any way possible. The Los Angeles community 
has been raising funds and gathering supplies for Mr. Dahan to distribute. Many other LA locals have gone on solidarity trips to Israel to assist him or tag along on some of his missions. In order to continue providing that support, Liad Norachan and Lynn Abisira have combined their ingenuity and efforts to locally fundraise in unique ways. Last week, these two women organized an event to raise money to support Al Dahan's continued efforts to support those in Israel, including soldiers, wounded civilians and soldiers, displaced families, providing Shabbat meals for soldiers, barbecues, and much more to directly help those who have suffered since October 7. The event was held at a local venue where there were 11 large raffles with over 70 vendors participating. These local Los Angeles Jewish businesses willingly donated their services, products, gift cards, etc. That event raised $14,065, which was directly on a plane with an L.A. local to Israel next day to be dispersed to those in need. Since Liat and Lynn have started their fundraising campaign with previous events, they have raised $26,720, which has been sent to various foundations in Israel and other organizations. They plan to organize another event that could host more than the 175 people who attended last week's event, which reached the maximum capacity of attendees due to venue cap capacity. The goal is to organize a bigger event that can host more people and raise more awareness of what the funds are for and be able to accomplish. That's Los Angeles Jewish Businesses Unite to Support Israel, author unknown. This next one is Legal Holiday Shuriam at Anish Emes, author unknown. On the legal holiday of December 25, Anish Emes held a shiur presented by Rabbi Yitzhak Summers on the topic of All's Well That Ends Well, a halachic analysis. The shir was well attended, with a served breakfast sponsored by the Magid and Sarto families. The shir's topic discussed the halacha of beginning and ending each aliyah on a positive note. This concept extends beyond aliyos to other areas, like the endings of Gemoras and also sections of Shulchan Aruch. The shir finished by discussing the Musar and Midos aspects of thinking positively and looking at the brighter side. Rabbi Yaakov Moshe Harris of Anish Emes of Los Angeles gave a special legal holiday shiur on the topic of Halakos Kiryas Shima and Miharas Yosef. A large crowd was in attendance with breakfast sponsored by the Magrid Sarto and Gilbert families. That was legal holiday shiriim at Anish Emes, author unknown. This next one is called 30 plus Sephardic Rabbinim make joint statement on Yoshan. Author unknown. In a notable display of unity, over 30 Sephardic Rabbanim from shuls, yeshivas, and organizations from Los Angeles and the Valley have come together to address a lingering matter in the community, the observance of Yoshan. The Torah in MR 23.14 prohibits consuming new grain planted after Pesach. The joint letter has also been endorsed by previous chief Sephardic uh, rabbi of Israel, Rav Shlomo Moshe Amar, and Rav David Yosef, son of the late chief Sephardic rabbi, uh, Rav Ovadia Yosef. Historically, the ambiguity surrounding the timing of grains and challenging living conditions forced many Ashkenazi communities to rely on doubts and lenient opinions to allow the consumption of doubtful Hadosh products. 
The consensus amongst the Partic Paskim and several Ashkenazi Paskim is that Hodosh, both inside and outside Eretz Yisrael, is forbidden from the Torah. OC 489 YD 295 Recent agricultural and technological advances have transformed the landscape of grain production and delivery, prompting a reevaluation of how much to publicize the issue of Hodosh. The changing conditions has led to a reinvigorated focus on Yoshan goods, with numerous bakeries and pizza shops in Los Angeles now adopting the use of Yoshan flour, making it easier than ever to obtain such baked goods. In fact, Bibby's Bakery on Pico Boulevard recently adopted Yoshan flour for some of its baked goods to help meet the demand of Yoshan-conscious consumers. In light of these developments for uh, the uh, for the availability of Yoshan bakeries and pizza shops in L.A., the Rabbanim stress the significance of heeding the advance of the Hafetz Hayim as expressed in the Mishnah Berua for 89.45 and Bir Halacha, encouraging the procurement of Yoshan goods whenever possible. As the, as the embrace of Yoshan grows within, within, the, within the community, there exists a genuine desire for a future where every establishment prioritizes the availability of Yoshan products. This collective aspiration envisions a community where all members of the Jewish community can delight in the consumption of such offerings without a considerable increase in the cost to follow the mitzvah. That was 30 plus Sephardic Rabbanim make joint statement on Yoshan. Author unknown. All right, there's this one. Sefer Bereshit comes alive at Hillel Hebrew Academy. Author unknown. As Kalal Yisrael finished Sefer Bereshit, students at Hillel were transported into the land of Bereshit. As students arrived at school, they were surprised to see their recess yard transformed into the very parashiyot they have been learning inside the classroom, now fully alive in their yard. Each grade got to travel through the parashiyot, meeting the Avot and Imahat, and learning how they can apply their special ways and midot in their individual lives today. After all, we are taught the actions of our forefathers and foremothers were a sign of how we should live our lives today. This was the rationale behind the hours of work that Hillel teachers put into every single detail of their life-size Siyom Sefer Bereshit. We show the relevance of Abraham's kindness today, the strength of Yitzhak, and just how crucial the commitment to truth is as highlighted by Yaakov. From the Marat Hamahapela to Goshen in Egypt, students got to experience it all. The sounds, the taste, the animals, all of it. At Hillel, in addition to the academic excellence we offer in the classroom setting, the immersive and experiential learning environment provided is one of a kind. That Sefer Bereshit comes alive at Hillel Hebrew Academy. Author unknown. This last one is called Treasured Moments Tea Party for Mothers and Daughters at Yeshiva Aaron Yaakov or Eliyahu. Over the past seven weeks, Yeshiva Aaron Yaakov or Eliyahu, mothers and daughters, have been learning together every Shabbos under the Treasured Moments program. Each week, Meaningful lessons on the topic of Olam Hesed Yebane were sent home with each girl in grades 2nd through 8th, which included insights into the Parsha, stories of inspiration, Hesed tips, a did-you-know section, 
and questions for discussion relating the Parsha to the topic of Hesed. To celebrate the culmination of the learning, a gala tea party took place on Sunday, December 31st, which included teachers, mothers, daughters, grandmothers, sisters, and aunts. The program began with Tehillim and singing Ahenu, mother-daughter learning on the topic of Olam Hesed Yebane, and delect delectable desserts, tea, and hot chocolate. The most popular treat was Jello in fancy teacups. Girls Lemude Kotesh principal, Mrs. Malaka Schwarzmer, gave meaningful words of Devray Torah on doing small acts of daily chesed for those around us in the Zechas for those in Eretz Israel. After tea time, the crowd was treated to a taste of chesed from a variety of chesed organizations in the local community where mothers or daughters could choose to volunteer. Some of these included the clubhouse, Shoshanim, Atiras, Avigail, Bekur, Holim, and the school itself. We then put your learning into action with a large art project where mothers and daughters worked together to tie blankets together to send to the Laniado Hospital in Eretz Yisrael. The program was brought to fruition through the tireless efforts of Mrs. Rochelle Wakebroad, with the support of YAYOE staff, staff, including Rabbi Shlomo Goldberg, Ms. Malaka Schwarzmer, Mrs. Sarah Kaufman, Mrs. Leora Gankrow, Mrs. Sharon Sachs, and Ms. Dina Zisblatt. That was Treasured Moments Tea Party for Mothers and Daughters at Yeshiva Aaron Yaakov or Eliyahu, author unknown, and those are articles from the Around the Community section. Now we go to a section called Psycho-Spiritual Insights, Exploring Parasha and Psychology. And this is called Resisting the Current, Unraveling Obedience by Elon Jafanfar. This week we begin a new Sefer of the Torah and a new secular year. In Parashat Shemot, we encounter the powerful story of the Jewish midwives Shifra and Pua, whose courageous defiance of Pharaoh's decree sparked the birth of the Jewish redemption. Their actions provide us a compelling lesson going into a season where people set New Year's goals and attempt to better themselves based on a calendar change. Amidst the oppression and cruelty of Mitzrayim, their actions shed light on the psychological concept of social obedience and pressures to confirm. conform. In the 1960s, in the wake of the Holocaust and as the Eichmann trial began, Yale psychologist Stanley Milgram sought to understand the dynamics of obedience to authority figures even when it meant acting against their own moral values. His studies famously demonstrated that individuals were willing to obey authority figures even when it meant inflicting harm on others, proving the pressures of conformity and authority. Pharaoh commands Shifra and Pua to kill every Hebrew baby born. However, these courageous women refused to comply with the immoral order. The Torah tells us, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. They let the boys live. Exodus 1.17 Despite the threat to their own lives, the midwives chose a path of defiance grounded in their fear of Hashem and a commitment to a higher moral principles. Shemot Rabbah tells us that Shifra and Puah were none other than Yocheved and Miriam, Moshe's own mother and sister. Torah refers to them by nicknames embodying their actions. Pua is named for defying Pharaoh's orders, Hebrew for hopfia, and Shifra from the mitzvah to be fruitful, Hebrew for Peru. 
Milgram's experiments revealed the power of the situational factors in influencing human behavior, highlighting the dangers of unchecked obedience to authority. Their resistance, however, points to the ex uh, existence of a moral compass within individuals that can override external pressures. The Ibn Ezra writes that after the decree, they worked harder in childbirthing to ensure more lives would be saved. Their actions serve as a testament to the possibility of maintaining ethical principles, even when confronted with the coercive forces of authority. This lesson applies in our daily lives to increase our courage to resist the attraction of the current social norms. Halakha informs us of many times where obedience has its time and place as seen by the rules and laws that guide our daily actions as Jewish people. However, this form of obedience is in service of Hashem and His divine prov uh, providence, not the current societal trends in the secular world that sway us. The story of these powerful Jewish women challenges us to reflect on the sources of authority in our lives and the extent to which we blindly conform to societal norms. It prompts us to question whether our moral compass guides our actions or if we are merely following the path of least resistance. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, To be yourself in a world that is constantly trying to make you something else is the greatest accomplishment. The midwives teach us that within the human spirit lies the potential for resistance, reminding us that even in the face of formidable authority, one can choose the path of righteousness. As we navigate the complexities of our own lives, may we draw inspiration from the faith in Hashem of midwives to stand out when it comes to our values and resist the current. That was Resisting the Current, Unraveling Obedience by Ilan Javanford from the Psycho-Spiritual Insights Exploring Parshan Psychology section. Ilan Javanford, M-A-L-M-F-T, is a consulting psychotherapist focused on behavioral health redesign, a professor of psychology at Pepperdine University, and a lecturer related to mindfulness, evidence-based practices, and suicide prevention. Elon is the author of Psycho-Spiritual Insights, Exploring the Parasha and Psychology, a weekly blog. He lives in the Los Angeles Pico Robertson community with his wife and two children and can be reached at elon.javanfort at gmail.com. And here's something from the Shalom Bayit through the Parsha section. Parsha Shimot, Imagine Yourself by Rabbi Nir Yaakovi. A rabbi leading a group of married men said, if you feel good about yourself, you'll feel good about other relationships. So let each one of us say one good thing about himself. I'm good at math, offered one. I'm handsome, offered another. A third guy said, I'm good for nothing, but I have an amazing shalom by it. You belong to the pathetic liars group, quipped the rabbi. When God tasks Moses to be a leader, we see him having low self-esteem. I'm a foreigner. I have a speech impediment. How can I lobby Pharaoh? When God tasked Noah to build the ark, he didn't say, I'm not worthy. Nor did Abraham respond in that way. Moses in something does God and does, and God teaches him five different ways to improve his self-esteem. This is number one. God said, I'll be with you. Let me explain. Self-esteem is about your perception of your own value. Value depends on perspective. Who, when, where. An otherwise precious diamond may be worthless in a time of famine. 
Words are infinite in God's perspective of timelessness, infinite value. The world was created for you and God is by you. How much joy should you live with? How much joy should you protect to uh, project to others, especially your wife, for shalom by it? That was Parshat Shemot, Imagine Yourself, by Rabbi Nir Yacobi from the Shalom Bayat through the Parsha section. Rabbi Nir and his wife Atrian give regular classes on Shalom Bayat. His popular three-minute podcast is funny and draws Shalom Bayat ideas from the Torah portion of the week. To register, shalomincomics at gmail.com. Now here's something from the LA Jewish Kids section, Rebbe Stories, this is called King Monbaz by Rabbi Mordecai Dubin. There was a non-Jewish king by the name of Monbaz. Royalty had been in his family for many generations, and now he had inherited the throne as well as the abundance of wealth that had been passed down by his ancestors. King Monbaz and his mother Hilni were deeply influenced by the wisdom of the Jewish sages and the exceptional qualities of the Jewish people, so they decided that they wanted to become Jewish after King Monbaz and his mother became uh, became Garim. They donated large amounts of gold to enhance the beauty of base Hamigdash and the land of Israel. One time there was a terrible famine in the land of Israel. Food was scarce and whatever was available was very costly. The people of Israel were starving. King Monbez opened up his treasury and practically emptied it by purchasing food from other lands for the starving people. When his non-Jewish family members heard what he was doing, they immediately rushed to his side and rebuked him. How could you do such a thing, they screamed. Don't you realize how many years it took for our forefathers to acquire all that wealth and now you you throw it away? King Munbaz responded calmly and confidently. Our forefathers accumulated the treasures for their own honor. I am using the treasure for the honor of Hashem. Our forefathers used their treasures for their own pleasure. I am using it to help others. Our forefathers used their treasures to purchase items that will be lost, stolen, or will eventually wear out. I am purchasing mitzvahs that will last forever. Our forefathers are no longer around to enjoy their treasure, but I will enjoy this treasure in this world and the next. The non-Jewish relatives of King Monbaz walked away angrily, realizing that King Monbaz would not listen to them and he would continue to give away his treasure to help others. That was King Monbaz by Rabbi Mordecai Dubin from the LA Jewish Kids Rabbi's Story section. This story can be found in Baba Basra 11a. Rabbi Mordecai Dubin is a Rebbe at Jindi Maimonides Academy. He is the author of three illustrated children's books, I'll Never Forget, Yerushalayim, I Believe, and I Know, Six, and has produced four musical CDs for children. I Made This World For You, Let My People Go, Al Shalosha Devarim, and Hashem Is Always With Me. All right, let's conclude with some ads from the LA Jewish Home for January 4th through the 17th, 2024, Volume 2, Number 10. Starting off with this one, turn your occasion to a majestic event. MGC, Majestic Let Kosher Catering, since 2005. 20 plus years of experience creating prestigious events, stunning selection of stations for weddings, engagements, bar and bat mitzvahs, and private parties. Specialized in magnificent breakfast for Brits, Halav Yisrael. Glat Kosher under RCC, speak Hebrew and English. For more information, please contact Maror at 
8225. Here's another one. SG California Incorporated Real Estate Plus Management Property Management. Looking to buy, sell, or manage your property? Contact us, Jacob Shadros, DRE number 00978679. Office number 310-777-0436. Direct number 310-435-3080. Email is jacob.sgcalifornia at gmail.com. Address is SG California Incorporated, 485 South Robertson Boulevard, number 9 in Beverly Hills, 90211. This is not intended as a solicitation if your property is currently listed with another agent or broker. Here's another one. Channel Four Seasons Bentley. It's time to add one more luxury brand to the list. Ultimate Health by Amanda Care. Designed specifically for discerning business owners, Ultimate Health allows you to switch your personal after-tax healthcare spend over to your business, get the robust coverage you deserve, medical care, prescribed massage therapy, brand name RX, dental care, and vision, have the richer coverage you want without investing in an expensive primary plan. You decide who and when to enroll. This is not local, state, or federal tax advice, as each person and each company is unique. It is recommended that you see the independent counsel of a professional tax advisor. Phone is 310-407-9333. Email is dovi, D-O-V-I, at peakbis.com. Website is p www.peakbis.com. License number 0G67814 and OC97904. Dovey Plattner, Peak Benefits and Insurance Solutions. Here's one. UYU in Israel. Earn a degree designed in partnership with Bar Elon University and Tel Aviv University. Prepare for personal and professional success through the new Yeshiva University in Israel undergraduate program. Combine world-class Torah studies with elite academics and tap into Israel's innovation hub while experiencing vibrant student life on scenic Jerusalem campuses. Men's Torah studies and programming at the Gerus Institute of YU in Israel. Women's Torah studies and programming at the Horev campus, launching in fall of 2024. Uh, website is yu.edu/yui. Yeshiva University and Tel Aviv University. Here's one. I wish I would have known about long-term care insurance. I'm already depleting my retirement funds, and I don't want my kids to have to take care of me. Get your LTC insurance while you still can. Contact the office at landowinsurance.com. Uh, phone is 323-937-1076. Website is www.landauinsurance.com. And this one, Nefesh Benefesh, Aliyah, It's Your Move. Website, www.nbn.org.il. Phone, 1-866-4-ALIA. That's 1-866-4-A-L-I-Y-A-H. Here's this, Sunday Sizzle, Persian-style barbecue, at Santa Monica Kosher Market, 5 p.m. every 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. every Sunday, Santa Monica Kosher Market, 1154 Santa Monica Boulevard in L.A., 
9025. Here's this. Kosher restaurant lunch special soon available. $15.99 will apply to most items. Get a Gishmat, 17117 Beverly Boulevard in LA, 90036. Call for takeout, 323-847-5269. Website, www.geshmak.net. And this one, Martin Fishman and Associates since 1971. Qualify for $5 million of life insurance with no exam and instant approval. Naftali Fishman, Fishman California Insurance License Number 0148694. Uh, email is naftali at Phone is 323-866-0830. And this one. I need help with my teen. Ascend Healthcare Residential and Outpatient Services. Teen Mental Health and Substance Abuse Treatment. Website www.ascendhc.com. Phone 310-361-3202. Well, folks, it looks like we are just about to come to the end of another edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So, for everything that is happening with us Jewish folk right here in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world, find it all right here. Whether it's in the field of entertainment, or in the business, in your community, or in one a great while in sports. Find it all here. Until next time, everybody, this is your rear end host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace. <laughs>